0: Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When a movie or a TV show ends a string of credits crawl across the screen. It's known as the credit roll. The credits list members of the cast and crew who contributed in some way to the production of the film. In Great Britain, the credits crawl left to right. In the United States, they scroll bottom to top. The term credit roll comes from a time early in filmmaking When the credits were written on a roll of paper and actually were wound past the lens of the camera at the end of the movie. The reason I'm explaining this is because most of you never stay for the credits. The movie ends and you head for the doors. The credits all last five, six minutes maybe after the film's over. But the moment you see the names begin to roll, man, people start to leave. In fact, after the Muppet movie, as the credits begin to roll animal suddenly appears back on the screen and he screams go home it's for all those few diehards who have nothing else to do but just sit there and watch meaningless credits and names roll on and on and yet sometimes it's worthwhile to stay for the credits lord of the rings has some really cool sketches that are embedded in their credits Other movies will add a scene that advances the storyline past the conclusion of the film. Still others add information that alerts viewers to the coming sequel. Or it might even show a blooper from the actual filming. Well, here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to think of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 as a movie. As we learned last week, this movie tells a rags to riches story. In fact, it's your story. It's my story. Verses 1 through 7 are the film. It traces how we went from dead to alive, from guilty to mercy, from sinners by nature to seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is the feel-good of all feel-good stories. But now in verse 8, the movie's over. And guess what? The credits begin to roll. Now, granted, with most movies, you'd leave at this point. Why endure a boring names list of cast and crew? Just brush the popcorn off your lap and head for the exits. But wait a minute. Not this morning. For these are not your typical credits. Here are the crew members responsible for your salvation. Grace and faith and gift and God. God. And of course, the story is created in Christ Jesus. You see, a huge part of appreciating any story is realizing who and what originated the idea and how it was produced. See, I'm the guy who likes to stay for the credits. We need to give credit where credit is due. And when it comes to our relationship with God, the importance of getting this right can't be overestimated. You see, this is what Paul is doing in this morning's text. He rolls the credits on our rags to riches story. And we learn the who and the what and the how. All that's behind the changes that God has worked and is working in our lives. Hey, never stop giving credit where credit is due. And your faith is far less likely to grow cold. It's appreciation that keeps fanning the flames of our passion for God. We need to be grateful for what God has done. And here's the first credit to roll after your story. Here's the very first credit. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And yet, let's start with a question this morning. What does it mean to be saved? You know, to me, this is the most misunderstood word in the Christian vocabulary, especially among folks who live in the Bible belt. Have you noticed that everybody seems to be saved? You ask them, are you, sa- oh, I was saved. Most Southern folks think of salvation as something they've done, as a statement they've made. Oh, I walked an aisle, or I prayed a prayer, or, I signed the card, I'm saved. Sort of like pledging a fraternity. Or going out for the football team in high school. You fill out the form. You take a physical and you undergo an initiation. And man, you're in. It's something that you do. But that's not what Paul means when he says that we've been saved. It's not something you do. It's something that God does for you. And to you. And in you. And even through you. Hey, give credit where credit is due. Jesus saves you. He frees you from the penalty and punishment and power of sin. He transforms your nature from selfishness to righteousness. He delivers you from fear and guilt and angst and fills you with joy and peace. He transfers you from darkness to light. He rescues you from the flesh and the world and the devil. Here's the question. Has something happened to you? The question of whether or not you're saved is not, have you tipped your hat to God at some point in the past? But has God gotten a hold of you and done something really big in your life? If you've been saved, he has. Imagine yourself trapped in quicksand. Like a Tarzan, Jesus swings in on the vine and he plucks you out of the muck and mire. He sets your feet on solid ground. You're saved when Jesus swoops in. You see, salvation is what he does, not what we do. You can walk a thousand church aisles and answer a thousand altar calls and pray a thousand prayers, but you're not saved until Jesus does a work in you. And Paul says, it's by grace that you've been saved. In fact, it was so vital for Paul to credit our salvation to grace that he slipped it in earlier. I think you noticed there at the end of verse 5, there was a parenthesis that said, By grace you have been saved. Now here in verse 8, Paul repeats himself. But understand, he couldn't tell you the story the first time without chalking it up to grace. Jesus swoops in to save you. But you need to know it's not because you're a nice guy or he owes you in any way or you might get a job one day and actually give a tithe or you have talents he can use or you did some good deed. There is nothing you've done or could ever do to deserve his salvation and yet he swings in anyway. It all has to do with the greatness of his grace. Notice back in verse 4, Paul mentions God's rich mercy. He also mentions his great grace. And then he says something truly wonderful. He adds five words with which he loved us. Understand this, it's one thing to speak of the richness of God's mercy and the greatness of his grace. Man, they both fill the heavens. The universe can't contain them but then to take that rich mercy and that great grace and then to aim it at us? God took his great mercy and his great grace and with them he loved us. This is mind-boggling. And here's where Paul gets careful. Lest we think it's us who've done something to earn this favor. No, he assures us it's all a matter of grace. Paul goes out of his way to protect against anyone thinking that our salvation is something we've earned. It's all God's grace. We've been saved by grace. In a Dennis the Menace comic strip, Dennis and his buddy Joey, they're leaving Mrs. Wilson's house. Their hands are full of cookies. Their faces are covered with crumbs and chocolate smudges and, and great big smiles. That's when Joy asks, he says, I wonder what we did to deserve this. Dennis, who normally is a menace, he answers with the perfect definition of grace. He says, Look, Joy, Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies not because we're nice, but because she's nice. Hey, this is grace, it's God's deal, it flows from his heart. Grace is God's inclination. It's his willingness to love folks who don't deserve to be loved. I've heard it said, grace is love that's on the house. It's not fair. It's free. It's not earned. It's given. It's not expected. It is a surprise to the sinner's heart. It is the unbought, unwrought, unsought love of God. Hey, if we could act in a way to merit God's grace, then it wouldn't be grace. We need to nail it down. God saves us not because we are good, but because he is full of grace. And so, God favors us by grace. But here's another question. Do we have a part to play? And the answer is yes. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. Our part is simple, but it's crucial. When Tarzan swoops in to pull us out, we got to grab hold. we got to have faith. you got to trust in Jesus' intentions and abilities and let Him work in you. Our salvation is unmerited and undeserved, but it is not unreceived. You've got to embrace it. It's a gift, but a gift always needs to be opened. On Christmas morning, there may be packages under the tree with my name on them, but unless I accept the package and open it, I won't receive the benefits. You know, one of the most bizarre legal cases in American history occurred in 1829. George Wilson was convicted of robbery and murder, and he was sentenced to die. Yet just before his scheduled execution, President Andrew Jackson issued Wilson a presidential pardon. That's when a strange thing occurred. Wilson refused the pardon. He preferred to die. Wilson argued that a pardon rejected was not really a pardon at all. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, where the judges ruled in favor of Wilson. He was ultimately hanged. A pardon doesn't pardon unless it's accepted. And the same is true in the court of God. You need faith to receive God's pardon, or you forfeit its benefits. Realize there's one prerequisite for us to be saved. It requires no sweat or toil on our part. We burn no calories. We fatigue no muscles in participating. You could never refer to it as work. It's something everybody has, yet few folks exercise. It's called faith. Jesus swings to my rescue and pulls me out of the mire, but I grab hold of him by faith. This is why we need to be careful when we define faith. Theologians make two mistakes. They tend to water it down or they thicken it up and both change its meaning. Some teachers water faith down. They make it nothing more than an intellectual thing, an intellectual agreement or an academic conclusion. Oh yes, I believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again, therefore I must be saved. But that alone isn't saving faith. James 2 verse 19 tells us that even the demons believe. They agree with the facts about Jesus. They acknowledge Christ and God, but they're not saved. Obviously, faith requires more. You see, real faith gets personal. It's the willingness to stake my life and my welfare, both now and forever, on what I say I trust. Faith is to act on what I believe. I know I can't save myself But I believe that Jesus can save me, and thus I yield to the changes that he makes and the conclusions he states. I participate with him. That's real faith. We shouldn't water faith down, but neither should we thicken it up and turn it into something it's not. Here's how this can happen. It's true. Faith is acting on what I believe. But then we start making a list of what those actions might be. Faith will do this, and faith will do that. And before long, we've turned the this and the that into our own requirements for real faith. You see, water faith down, and it's less than real faith. But thicken it up, and you're guilty of turning faith into a work. You see, in Paul's theology, he always keeps the two separate. Faith is always faith, and works are always work. Romans 4 verse 5 is a great example. He says, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You see, Paul sees faith and works as opposing ways of approaching God. We cease from our works and we exercise simple faith. And yet faith is not so simple. And it's definitely not so easy. It always involves turning away turning away from sin or from the familiar or from the convenient and depending on Jesus in a new way. At 4 a.m. on August the 30th, 2005, Coast Guard helicopter pilot Ian McConnell, he reported to his Mobile, Alabama launch pad for work. He was put in command of the first rescue efforts in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. On his first three missions, Lieutenant McConnell and crew saved 89 people, three dogs, and a cat. They plucked survivors off rooftops and from second-story windows. But their fourth trip had a very different result. The dozen or so people they attempted to rescue refused pickup. Lieutenant McConnell commented, Some people told us to simply bring them food and water. We warned them, you are trying to live in unhealthy conditions and the water will stay high for a long time. Still, they refused. I felt frustrated and angry, he said, since we had precious time and fuel and had put ourselves at risk during each rescue attempt. I felt like they were ungrateful, but in truth, they didn't know how desperate their situation was. And I'm sure this is how God feels about his rescue attempts. Jesus swings in to save us, but that doesn't guarantee that everyone wants to be saved. You know, some people are determined to survive on their own. Other folks don't know how desperate their situation is. Pride and stubbornness will resist God's rescue. Faith makes sense only to humble people. Only to folks who've given up trying to save themselves and are ready to turn toward God's rich mercy. In his great grace. God chooses to save us in a way that leaves no room for any of us to take any of the credit. When the credits roll, here's what's listed. God and grace and gift and Christ. Paul says of our salvation in verse 8. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. A gift is always free. Free. Hey, if you receive a W-2 on your salvation, if it's wages earned, then trust me, it's not of God. The salvation that saves and seals and frees and forgives and heals is a gift. One Sunday, a man ran up to Billy Sunday at the close of his sermon. And he pleaded, what must I do to be saved? The preacher shook his head and he said, it's too late. The man was crestfallen. That's when Billy Sunday added, Oh, it's too late for you to do anything since the work has already been done by Jesus. Salvation was purchased by the sacrifice of Christ. Recall the Savior's last words from the cross. It is finished. Or literally paid in full. Reminds me of the dad who took his son and his six pals to the carnival to celebrate his son's birthday. The dad bought a huge roll of tickets. And at each ride, he would stand there and he'd count out seven tickets. That is, until they came to the Ferris wheel. He tore off the seven tickets. He passed them out. But there was one new kid standing there. He said, who are you? The kid replied, I'm Johnny. Well, who are you, Johnny? I'm your son's newest friend. And he said, you'd give me a ticket. And guess what that dad did? He gave him a ticket. How could he refuse his son's generosity and grace? And this is what God does for the strange fellow who shows up, that stranger, me and you. This is what God does. Because of what his son did at Calvary, God tears off a ticket and he gives it to us. Though Jesus paid a steep price for God's favor, his carnival, his rides, God's blessings are a gift to us. It may surprise you, but there are really only two types of religion in the world. I'm sure you thought that there were thousands of religion. But in reality, when you examine them, you conclude that they all fall into either one of two categories. 99.9% of the world's religions, they emphasize what man must do to make himself worthy of God, to please God. The Buddhist eightfold path The Hindu doctrine of karma, Judaism's Ten Commandments, Islam's five laws. Even some so-called Christians believe they're going to heaven because they keep the golden rule. Rules, rules, rules. The vast majority of religions, though each of them have their own prescriptions, their tenet is the same. Do this or do that and you can earn your way to heaven. That's all religions but one. Real, biblical Christianity says something very different. And it's adamant. We can do nothing to satisfy God. It's not of yourselves, Paul says. The Savior does the work. He's gained for us a right standing with God. It's His sacrifice that makes all the difference. He is the one who earns for us God's favor. Jesus swings in. And all we do is grab hold in faith. Realize none of us set the terms of our salvation. You can't say to God, well, Lord, I'll grab hold and let you pull me out of the quicksand if you'll agree that I'm not such a bad guy after all. Well, I help a few charities and I'm a family man and I pay my taxes and work hard. I don't cheat anybody. Realize Jesus doesn't swoop in to prop up your pride or to preserve your reputation or to help you save face. He wants to save you. Your part is humility. Your grabbing hold of him is admitting that you need his grace. It's confessing your sin and accepting his changes and realizing that there's nothing that you can do to make yourself worth saving. You should just be thankful for his grace. Let me say it this way. Suppose me, Michael Phelps, and Big Bird are on a cruise together. Sort of strange, I know, but just kind of hang with me on this, would you? Me, Michael Phelps, and Big Bird were on a cruise when all of a sudden our ship hits an iceberg. It sinks in the middle of the Atlantic, thousands of miles from the nearest shore. Now all three of us have to swim for it. Well, you can forget about Big Bird. He's a goner right off the bat. I mean, all those feathers, that big bulk, there's no way he's going to survive. He's going to drown immediately. I'm going to do better than Big Bird. I'm reasonably fit for 55 years old. I can swim. I could stay afloat a little bit on my back. I could get maybe, 10, maybe 20 miles. Who knows if I had to? Of course, Michael Phelps is an Olympic champion swimmer. I'm sure he can swim hundreds of miles. But even Michael has a problem. We're thousands of miles out to sea. Phelps will do better than me. I will do better than Big Bird. But none of us are good enough to swim across an ocean. And so it is in our attempts to please God. Oh, you might be more righteous than me. I might be better than him. But hey, up against God's holiness, we're all going to fall miserably short. Romans 3 verse 10 puts everyone, every one of us in our place. There is none righteous, no, not one. Hey, when the credits roll on my salvation, the one name that won't appear is Sandy Adams. Paul puts it plainly that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And yet it's as if we don't get it. For immediately in the very next verse for emphasis, no doubt, Paul tells us again. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. I mean, do you think that God knows how stubbornly self-righteous we can be? In verse 8, he says, it's not of yourselves. And now in verse 9, he has to say, it's not of works. Whenever I drive down to Columbus to visit my daughter Natalie, I notice the road sign on I-85, Allen Jackson Freeway. In 2009, five miles of the interstate near Jackson's hometown of Noonan was named in honor of the country singer. Alan Jackson has had 35 songs reach number one on the country charts, but the one I always think of is entitled Where I Come From. The chorus goes as follows Where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, there's a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, we're trying to make a living. And working hard to get to heaven, where I come from. And when I hear that song, I want to weep. For there are a lot of folks where I come from who have that very approach. They're working hard to get to heaven, yet that's not how God says that we get there. Verse 9 states, it's not of works. And Paul tells us why. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Heaven will be a brag-free zone. To his credit, Alan Jackson seems to be a humble enough guy. When they named the interstate after him, he actually commented, I'm not so sure I quite qualified for the main highway. Maybe they should have picked a dirt road. But if God adhered to Alan Jackson's theology and made heaven a reward for working hard, it would be unbearable once we got to heaven. Imagine having to listen to prideful people drone on and on year after year for all eternity about the great sacrifices they made and the good they did and their noble deeds and how they earned all of this. I mean, after a few thousand years of brag-fest, I'm certain heaven wouldn't be quite as heavenly. You might want to put in for a transfer. When we get to heaven, there'll be no boasting. Understand, the one thing you won't find in heaven is bragging. There'll be no haughtiness in heaven. Proverbs 6, verse 16 reads, Six things the Lord hates. And do you know the first on his list? A proud look. He doesn't even wait for you to open your mouth. Just a proud look. He hates it. Like fingernails down a blackboard. Arrogance grates on God's nerves. It's been said, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone else sick except the one who has it. If there was something I could do to earn God's favor, it would justify my boasting. But there's not, and so I can't. God is a debtor to no one. He owes me or you nothing. I'm the one who's obligated. And God has eliminated all possibility for boasting by rendering our good works unnecessary. Once an artist was commissioned to paint the prodigal son. He needed a model for his portrait, so he canvassed the drunks and bums and derelicts in his town. He finally found a suitable candidate, and he asked the man to be at his studio at 10 o'clock the next morning. And yet at 10 o'clock, the only man in his studio was this clean-cut, well-shaven fellow. It dawned on the painter that this was his prodigal. The man said that he figured that if he was going to pose for a painting, he should clean himself up. And yet, it was his efforts to clean up that disqualified him from posing for the portrait. And this is a lesson for us. Not that God is against you cleaning up. To the contrary, he's happy to help. But don't think your efforts to be good and clean are going to win God's approval. A bathe and a shave doesn't earn God's acceptance. It certainly doesn't make you worthy of his blessing. In fact, Insist on being self-righteous, and you've disqualified from receiving the righteousness of Christ. No matter who we are, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, on our own, none of us can ever be good enough for God. He's too high. He's too holy. We obtain and we maintain a right standing with God, not of works, but by grace through faith. In fact, sometimes the people furthest from God's kingdom are the good folks who walk around proud of their goodness. One author writes, It's always more difficult to convert a good person than it is a bad one. At least the dirty dude is aware of his need for a savior, whereas the clean-cut guy probably thinks he's fine. It's interesting. God does want to cleanse us of our sin and make our lives beautiful and useful and full of good works but not as a way to earn his favor, as a way to place his favor on display and bring him glory. That's the purpose of our good works. As verse 10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, here's how God wants the credits to roll. Any good that comes from my life, any righteousness at all, is the result of is not the result of my work for God but is the result of his work in me always remember good works never make us fit for God but God does make us fit for good works paul writes we are his workmanship in the greek language this term translated workmanship is poema from which we get our word poem A poema is an artistic expression. It's a work of art. Here's an alternative translation of verse 10. We are his masterpiece. The quality of our lives, the beauty of our relationships should result from God's handiwork in our lives. When a painter paints or when a sculptor sculpts, the art that results is the expression of that person's tastes and desires and dreams and creativity. It's a reflection of his or her heart. And this is what God desires to do in us. When you came to Christ, God put the spirit of the artist in you. The Holy Spirit now treats you like his canvas. He applies his brush strokes and spread his mixtures of color and arranges them and adds texture here and highlights there. Your life is the clay that God intends to shape into a beautiful vessel that he'll use to carry out his plans. We should think of our lives as the easel, as the canvas on the easel, or as the clay in the master's hands. We should be moldable and available. The most expensive painting ever sold was by the French artist Paul Zizani. It's entitled, The Card Player's. It was purchased in 2011 for $269 million. Unbelievable. But here's my question. If a couple of Frenchmen playing cards sells for $269 million, imagine what your life is worth. Granted, you're a painting in progress, but ultimately your life reflects the impressions of God. That makes its value immense. And who knows how your canvas will appear, how it will all blend together when the artist is finally through. At the moment, he might be adding shadows. God might be touching your canvas with dark, heavy colors. But don't you think that he can't just as easily lighten the palette and start adding touches of sparkle. You're his masterpiece. And he'll work tirelessly in you to produce the work of art that will bring him glory understand the heartbeat of christianity this is its very heartbeat if your concept of christianity is a litany of rules and regulations that have to be laboriously kept or if you think of christianity as a smorgasbord of duties you trudge through day after day then you couldn't be further from the truth understand this this is christianity's heartbeat Christianity is not so much about what we can do for God as it is what God has done for us. I got to admit it now. On this one, I was late to the party. I spent years on a legalistic treadmill, denying myself, pushing myself to do enough to earn God's favor. The church I attended always seemed to stress what we could be doing for God. Whereas once I started reading the Bible for myself, I realized, realized that it is just the opposite, what God has done and is doing in us, which means we can't brag. Our former church, we did a lot of bragging, but we can't brag if we understand God's grace. Anything we are that's good and godly, it's because we're his workmanship, not our own. Hey, we're God the artist's masterpiece. Once there were three old country fellas, they took a vacation to New York City. They checked into a high-rise hotel and then they hit the streets to see the sights. When they arrived back at the hotel, they discovered that the power was out. Their room was on the 49th floor. Well, the hotel clerk said that he, they could walk up the steps to their room or he would give them a temporary room on the second floor. Of course, their clothes and their belongings were on the 49th floor and they were so energetic, so excited to be in the Big Apple, they chose to climb up the staircase. Well, up and up they went. They hoofed at 30 floors before one of the guys collapsed. After waiting a while for him to recover, they pushed on. Finally, they reached floor 49. The three fellas, they stumbled out of the stairwell and they walked down the hall to their room. But it was there they made an awful discovery. They had forgotten the key. And this is what you want to avoid in the Christian life. Too many of us are like those three country fellas. We've been working hard to get to heaven. We have spent years wearing ourselves out, yet it's not of yourselves. You've climbed a spiritual staircase and you've ascended that legalistic ladder. You've hoisted yourself up one religious rung at a time, yet it's not of works. Even if you could make it to the top, you can't. But if you could, you'd still be in for a rude awakening. The key to getting in on all God's blessings In God's favor, and even heaven itself, is faith, not works. Progression in the Christian life is never achieved by climbing steps. It's by grace through faith. It took God stepping out of heaven and reaching down to us. You see, here's how I want to wrap up this morning's Bible study. We want to scroll down the credits of our salvation And here's who gets the kudos for our rags-to-riches story. It's by grace, through faith, the gift of God, His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Let's always give credit where credit is due.